Welcome to ChamberCast, the Billings Chamber of Commerce's podcast. I'm your host, Jack Genoy. Sanderson Stewart is one of those companies that you have probably seen everywhere and you've benefited from some of the work that they've done, even if you hadn't realized it. Today, we want to shine a spotlight on some of the work that Sanderson Stewart has done and share some of the exciting news that they've had about some recent expansion. Today, I'm joined by Michael Sanderson, President and CEO, to give us an update on this important Billings business. So to start us off, um, can you please just give our listeners an overview of what Sanderson Stewart is and everything that your company has to offer? Sure. Yeah. Thank, first of all, thanks for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to tell our story a little bit. Sanderson Stewart is, uh, is a company that's been in, around Billings for a long time, 54 years. And we're, we call ourselves a community design firm. We do community planning infrastructure engineering, landscape architecture and placemaking, surveying and mapping, uh, as well as uh, branding and marketing and visualization services for, for clients. Our clients really span from private land development to public infrastructure. So our clients are private land developers, institutions, you know, like uh, healthcare and schools and other industrial and, and institutional clients on the private side. And on the public side, we work for municipal government like the city of Billings and, and Yellowstone County, uh, as well as the Montana Department of Transportation. And so what we do is we plan and design uh, the built environment, but all the horizontal stuff. We don't do vertical architecture but everything else that you kind of experience in your daily life of sidewalks and, okay. sh- and streets and landscaping and, and the stuff under the ground that you don't see, like water and sewer and storm drains and stuff, we, we design, plan that, design it, uh, help, that, help our clients get those things built. Okay. Yeah. I think a lot of our listeners have probably seen your signs around town and you know that you're active in construction projects and that kind of thing, but uh, you seem to be tackling a lot of the things that people don't normally think about. You know, every, everybody notices the framing as it's going up and, and notices all of those aspects of construction. But There's a lot more to it than that. Yeah, there's a lot of things that happened before stuff started coming out of the ground. And there's a big part of what we do that's even before the civil uh, infrastructure that we design goes in from the land planning, the land surveying, starting with going out and surveying the land doing the land planning, going through what we call the entitlement process, whether that's zoning or annexation or a subdivision process. So we do a lot of you know, facilitating the process for our clients through, through all of that you know, regulatory and permitting process. So a lot of what we do, you know, people don't see, uh, but is, is kind of part and parcel to, to making one of our clients, you know, they have a vision for a project they want to get done, and, and we help them get there. So a client comes to you and they say, I, you know, I just purchased this plot of land out of the edge of Billings and I want to develop it into a subdivision. And they might have an idea of what might be involved in that process, but they come to you and where, where do you start with a project like that? Well, it depends on the client. Some clients come to us with a well thought out plan and vision already for what they want to do. And we can dive in and help them start to design that process. Oftentimes, an owner comes to us who has a piece of property and and they want to 
see what their options are. And we, we help them envision what could be done with that pro- property. And so that's where our land planners, our urban designers come in to help kind of envision what that project might look like. And, you know, it, we, we start with a blank piece of paper, you know, and, and, and a plot of that piece of property. And we start drawing and, and imagining um, what could be there, which is a very creative process, you know, and super fun to kind of envision yeah. what, what communities are going to look like and make that happen. One of the other things that's really unique about Sanderson Stewart, I mentioned uh, that, you know, our, our branding and marketing and visualization services that we provide, which is maybe not always thought of in hand in hand with, with civil engineering and land surveying. But if you think about a project like a residential subdivision or a commercial development, when those clients, when we get done building the civil the infrastructure, the streets and the sidewalks and everything, they're not done, right? They, they have a product that they need to go sell at that point in time. And, yeah. and so the branding and the marketing concepts around that project are actually pretty integral with the design of the project. You know, you, st- if you start at the beginning thinking, okay, what do we want this project to be? What do we, how are we going to present this to the marketplace? Have, we, we approach projects in a very multidisciplinary way where we've got our land planners and our urban designers and our engineers, as well as our you know, branding and marketing people at the table so that the design of the project uh, and the branding and uh, marketing of that project are kind of envisioned at the same time, which is a pretty cool kind of process to go through to, yeah. th- to think about a project that way. Do do most of your clients, uh, are you with most of your clients throughout that entire process or how much variance is there but from client to client and, and which you know, how many of your different services they want to take advantage of? It's, it's all over the board. Some, some clients, you know, we provide that complete comprehensive set of services from beginning to end. Others, we do, you know, one or more parts of that. And, and we collaborate all the time with, with other professionals who maybe are already part of that design team. So whether we're one member of a, a multi-firm design team, or we're doing all of it, um, we're happy to, you know, help our clients, however, however it works for them, but it really depends on the client. Yeah. So maybe it'd be helpful to hear a couple of examples of projects that people in Billings would be familiar with that you've worked on and maybe a, a example of a private project and a, and a public sector project. Sure. Uh, <laughs> there's a lot, um, obviously over a lot of years, we've done a lot of projects in Billings on the commercial development side, you know, all the way back to Rimrock Mall and okay. the marketplace and the Homestead Business Park, uh, but probably most recently, some of the development along the Shiloh Road Corridor, uh, Shiloh Crossing. But one great example is Shiloh Commons uh, out okay. there on Shiloh, which is a, what we would call a mixed-use project. It's mm-hmm. got residential apartments above retail and restaurant. It's a very mixed use project. That was a project where we really did provide that full scope of services, help to envision the branding of, of that project and the marketing of it from the very beginning, uh, along with the design of it, uh, the transportation planning that went into it, the traffic engineering. Okay. It's right there at a very busy intersection along yeah. Shiloh and Central. 
the drainage, the site layout, the, you know, all of that stuff. But that that's a great project that I think has been very successful uh, that we were able to, to provide that whole scope of services. You know, on the residential side, done a lot of work over the years for McCall development on the Josephine Crossing okay. and, and their other projects down there. Those projects are very, have a lot of moving parts. You know, they've mm-hmm. got, they've got parks, they've got paths and, and trails, they've got single family housing, they've got multifamily housing, they've got, you know, all, all of that. And so having our, it's not just an engineering civil engineering project it is you know thinking about how all those pieces fit together and, yeah um so those are fun when they're projects when you've got a lot of different aspects to them yeah um, yeah and i, I will, i'm sure you hear this all the time but i will say i hear it all the time where people hold up shiloh commons well both of those developments actually as a model for what we should be doing more of in housing development billings so yeah those are two obviously i chose those examples because i i do think they're representing some some really quality development that's happened in in billings in recent years yeah so and what about a public sector job that some people might be familiar with yeah i mean probably one of the biggest that is a number of years old now but probably everybody's quite familiar with that's that's really kind of a defining project for west billings is the shiloh road corridor itself mm. shallow road uh with the eight multi-lane roundabouts unique corridor actually in the country at the time it was built yeah really helped kind of define that corridor and launch a kind of a wave of of development in west billings yeah um traffic and transportation engineering is really a core strength and service that that sanderson stewart provides but i'll i'll add another project that we just cut the ribbon on that people are probably have heard about that I think is going to be just an iconic project for, for Billings is the skyline trail that was oh, just opened. Absolutely. Um, you know, we've done a lot of trails and, and bike and pedestrian projects over the years in Billings. And I just think that one is a really special project. The, the views, the connections it makes, I think people are going to, if, if you haven't been out on it yet, I think our team did an amazing job. Let me ask you a question that I know my father-in-law would ask if he was here. You designed Shiloh, defend the roundabouts. How <laughs> dare you, sir? Defend the roundabouts. <laughs> happy, happy to. Um, so my, my personal background is in traffic engineering and traffic safety. Roundabouts are, are very efficient, but they're very, very safe relative to traditional four-way traffic signals and always stop controlled intersections primarily for for a couple of reasons um, one is roundabouts there's it, it minimizes the number of conflict points mm-hmm. and even though there's plenty of opportunities to have fender benders most of the collisions you see in roundabouts tend to be kind of angular sideswipe type accidents and while it causes some damage to a car nobody dies in those accidents Whereas, you know, the, the T-bone, inter- T-bone crash that happens that when somebody reds, runs a red light, much higher probability of, of serious injuries and, and fatalities. And so the reason you're seeing lots of roundabouts being built, not just in Montana, but across the country, is the data on the safety is pretty, pretty indisputable. Yeah. And, and I tell people a lot of the same things, but I thought it would be a lot better coming yeah. from you. The other thing I think is, is great about them is, number one, they keep traffic flowing. You know, and I think it just makes driving a little bit more pleasant that way. But 
I've heard it brought up that the United States has some of the most standardized traffic signals and uh, and rules in the world. And I think that lends itself to a lot of drivers not really paying attention. You kind of get comfortable. You're just going to obey the inter- the signals and you're not really thinking. Roundabouts make you wake up and think a little bit more than most intersections do. Yes, which is another uh, maybe social science part of why they tend to be safer is you do have to engage your brain and actively think about what's going on and pay attention as you enter that roundabout. Do I have enough big enough gap? And it is a it's you, you definitely have to participate in, yes. in how that which is a good thing. I think so, too. Yeah, yeah, and you mentioned the other thing that is is great about roundabouts is they're very efficient, particularly at what I would call off-peak times. It's all intersections at that busiest time of day are going to be congested, but we've all driven up to that traffic signal at some odd hour, and you're on the side street waiting. Yeah, there's no one around, and you're waiting for the light to turn green when you show show up at a roundabout at an off peak time, you just drive right through. Right. Yeah, so yeah. they tend to be very efficient throughout the day where, where sometimes traffic signals are, are quite inefficient at those off peak times. So, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. <laughs> uh, everybody's had that experience where you're at, out at like midnight and you're sitting there at a red light and there's no other cars on yeah. the road for miles. And you just kind of feel, si- you just kind of <laughs> feel silly. Like yeah. that's when the rules of traffic start to yeah, feel arbitrary. Yeah, yeah. That's but, when you're wishing that was a roundabout. Yeah. Yeah, for yeah. sure. <laughs> uh, I have a, I have several different questions related to just, uh, you know, it's a priority of the Billings Chamber. Workforce development was our number one priority from our last survey because the so many of our businesses are having trouble finding the qualified talent that they're looking for and i think a big part of that is that we just need a lot more housing you know we need a lot more development of all kinds in billings and so you kind of have front row seat to what some of the barriers are to to that since you're doing a lot of the horizontal infrastructure are you mostly doing greenfields or do you do a, some infill development as well oh no we do, we do quite a bit of infill development as well and redevelopment of uh, existing properties um you know in places like like montana in billings you know, most of the communities in montana where there is still a lot of available greenfield mm-hmm. properties to develop we are you know you're still seeing a lot of that but we're definitely seeing a shift towards more um, and, a, and a healthy shift towards, you know, trying to, to re, redevelop existing properties that maybe aren't seeing their highest and best use or, or infilling properties. Because there's efficiencies, obviously, when you've got existing uh, infrastructure that you can tap into and you don't have to go build new infrastructure out on the fringes of the community, which can be very expensive. Mm-hmm. So we're definitely doing all of, all of those things. Talk a little bit about, and, uh, you know, to somebody who's not familiar with it, or or maybe, you know, if there was a city council member sitting in here, talk about uh, some of the difficulties of doing infill development versus a greenfield. And, you know, if somebody's goal is to encourage more of that, you know, healthy um, upcycling properties to their highest and best use, what are some of the barriers that you have to overcome when you're doing that? Yeah, I mean, if you put your, if we put ourselves in the shoes of, of a of a developer who's looking to do a project, oftentimes the challenge of an infill project is it's expensive to have to aggregate, basically combine together a bunch of different 
properties that are maybe owned by a whole bunch of different individuals, Mm. right? So, you know, you want to do a larger project and you need to aggregate several city blocks worth of property. There might be several dozen owners in a, you know, in a, in an area adjacent to downtown. And, and that takes a lot of time and effort and, and sometimes it's, you can't even get it done. Right. So there's just that kind of aspect of trying to aggregate properties and sometimes, you know, issues of maybe there's in these, you know, parts of the city that are a hundred years old, there's old alleys that are, that are platted and, and different things. And, you know, to, to go in and abandon some of those rights of way and aggregate properties is a pretty long and expensive process. Whereas I can go buy a single piece of property on the edge of the edge of town and, and get, get started. There's mm-hmm. also the infrastructure piece. You know, you think about doing a new project in an old part of the city where you've got uh, 80 or a hundred year old clay tile pipe uh, services and, yeah. and, and, you know, old water lines and, and things. And you have to go in and, and upgrade and replace all of those can be very expensive versus, you know, I can just go lay new, new water lines and know that I've got modern services. Yeah. And so what, you know, so the barriers there is it ends up being, it can end up being quite expensive. While it might be in the best interest of the community to do an infill project and, and leverage all the infrastructure of the existing city, it can be very expensive. And so where I've seen it work in other cities is that's where the, the, the community has to maybe that's, that's the public private partnership place uh, for, if we want to incentivize people to do infill, that's the place where tax credits or uh, economic development money can come in and say, hey, we can help to offset some of those costs of replacing old infrastructure, or we can help to do some of these things to make to, to maybe level the playing field a little bit in terms of the cost of development. Because I, I, I know clients of ours who would, who would love to do more infill and redevelopment uh, projects but it's hard to make the economics work sometimes. That is something I wanted to ask you about. Listeners of this podcast will be very familiar with the Chamber's defense of tax increment finance districts. Mm -hmm. Uh, It can be a very effective tool. Yeah. Yeah. uh, Just give us an example of, uh, you know, maybe a project that you worked on that would not have been possible without TIF. If you were talking to like a skeptical state legislature, you know, somebody who maybe doesn't see as much value in the program, you know, how would you explain that? A project that's very near and dear to my heart because I was on the board uh, of the Alberta Bear Theater. Mm. And while that's not a big development redevelopment project, that in itself, if you know the story there, that theater, which was redeveloped or renovated 30 some years ago and was getting very tired and, and it was time to, to renovate that again. And, um, you know, it needed to be expanded. It required some significant investment in the building itself. It required significant investment in the streetscape around it, such that you know it might have made more sense to just go build a new theater on a new piece of property. But the community wanted to keep that theater downtown, and and for very good reasons. And because of the downtown 
tax increment district and the ability to bring some public dollars to that project, they're able to do an amazing renovation of that, that theater and keep it downtown. And so, you know, I think that's a, that's one example of, of how, of a project that I think was, was a great story. I see what's happening in the, in the South Billings urban Mm. redevelopment area the Aspera, you know, there's there's the commercial development down there along South uh, or King Avenue East, and and some of the street renovation that's happening down in that neighborhood. That you know, would the tax base of that neighborhood be able to to make those neighborhood improvements to those streets and sidewalks and everything that's happening down there without the tax increment yeah. financing from that from that commercial development, I, you know, I don't think so. And so, you yeah. know, there's probably countless projects or across Billings and, and the state where you could point to it and say, would that have happened without the tax increment financing? And, you know, it's, it's a powerful tool. The other thing I really wanted to ask you about, you talk a little bit about how zoning and land use regulations impact you know how easy it is to develop a project and if you have any thoughts on the recent changes that have happened to the state legislature on on zoning codes i'd love to hear that as well you know zoning ha- has its place obviously but it also puts things in a box a bit about you know how creative we can get to solve certain problems and i think you know billings with some of its uh recode and and some of the efforts that have been going on to to update zoning codes and stuff has has been super positive because you've seen a lot of the zoning that's in place uh, in cities across the country that dates back you know it's post world yeah. war 2 stuff that never changed and you know the world changed the needs communities changed and we were still in this kind of what they call, you know, Euclidean zoning that dates way back. And I think the flexibility to do more mixed use projects where we have a, a combination of different product types within the same mm-hmm. areas, you know, is, is a necessary thing to in, increase the, you know, the, the quantity of, of housing units that that fit different people's, you know, that workforce housing stuff people can afford based yeah. on, on their wages. And so I, I think, you know, we're, we're moving in the right direction ever so slowly, probably. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And of course we know that mixed use has benefits for people's quality of life and public safety and, and all that kind of stuff. So you I, know, I a, totally agree with as you As a transportation engineer, transportation planner, where I've spent most of my career before I kind of got more into the, into the the business side of things, but uh, I still spend a lot of my time in in transportation planning. And I teach a cl- I teach I'm a adjunct professor at Montana State University, okay. and I teach transportation. And I tell my students all the time. We talk about sometimes the very best transportation solution is a better land use decision in the first place. Mm. Like you make a land land use and transportation are two sides to the same coin in that, you know, if we make a decision that we're going to build housing over here and places for people to work over there, you've now driven the need for a transportation solution to connect those things up. Yep. Right. Likewise, transportation access can drive land use values, which then drive development. Um, Mm. You go build a new road through the middle of a greenfield area 
all of a sudden, you know, there's land that's going to change the land use decisions people might make around that. Right. So yeah, transportation and land use really drive each drive each other. And so, you know, that, that, that scenario of we make this land use decision where all of a sudden we need to build a arterial road to connect these things. Mixed use development is an example of, well, what if I could live upstairs from where I work? Now yeah. I don't even have to drive, right? And so I've made a land use decision that limits the amount I have to invest in transportation infrastructure. And so I think being really thoughtful about land use can save us a lot of money in public infrastructure dollars because we don't have to build as much transportation infrastructure. Yeah. And yeah. coming from a transportation engineer who likes to design that stuff, I mean, <laughs> you know, um, we can certainly do that, go build more roads and transportation infrastructure, but is that the wisest use of our yeah. of our public dollars? In many cases, not. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense to me. There's a lot of interest these days that I'm seeing too of, there's a lot of people that are more interested in alternatives to vehicular transportation. A lot of people are wanting to bike or walk a lot more often, or there are people who are, you know, highlighting that, you know, they really want their streets to be designed with a lot of other goals with, uh, you know, just the throughput of cars being a rather more of a tertiary concern rather than the primary thing for a lot of people these days. Yeah, I think for a long time, we referred to as biking and walking and transit as alternate modes of transportation. Um, and there were funding programs that were that labeled it as such. Like these are, you know, alternate modes programs mm -hmm. as if driving your car was the mode, the default, the default. And these are alternates to that as, and I think just changing our language around this, that, you know, these are all, equally important viable modes of transportation and we need to consider all of those modes is a is the right my change in mindset we need we need to have and th and that's the root of movements like complete streets which you know the complete streets most cities billings has a complete streets policy really says that like we need to consider all modes yeah uh, and all users in our in our transportation infrastructure when we're when we're planning and designing these these facilities so i you know i think the transportation planning transportation engineering community has certainly changed its the way it approaches that unfortunately there's still a lot of development codes and regulations and and things out there that are baked into public policy that still kind of force our hand to to put you know, vehicles first. Mm. Um, and it's not that we're, we're going to not design for cars, but we need to, you know, consider yeah. all, all, all modes. And, and there's a, there's an equity piece, transportation equity piece too. You know, we've designed a lot of our communities where it's hard to participate in the economy unless you own and operate a car. Yeah. And we can't, you know, you can't get to work. You can't get to a grocery store unless you own a car. And so that makes it very difficult for people who can't, don't, can't afford it or for one reason or another can't operate a car. Right. You know, and so the, I think there's important, there's a lot of important reasons to, to think about yeah. uh, transportation modes differently.
Yeah. Well, and one of the lessons that I've learned over the last several years that I think is really important to keep in mind, whether you're talking about, and you alluded to this land use decisions or, you know, what types of housing or commercial spaces you choose to build or what types of transportation infrastructure you choose to build, that concept of induced demand. You know, if you, if you don't choose to build quality bike or pedestrian infrastructure, then you're going to see fewer people making that choice because it's just less viable. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've been there before when somebody said, well, why would we build that, that bike path there? Nobody rides their bike there. Well, of, of course not, <laughs> because the, <laughs> there's no infrastructure to accommodate it, you know, so they're going to make a different choice, right? You know, the, the concept of induced demand is, is, is an important one to understand in transportation. Yeah. Uh, I think we know that We've certainly seen examples where, you know, you go build more capacity in a roadway, it's going to fill up. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That's a, that's a joke that I, I make with people all the time. So please just one more lane. I promise one more lane and the traffic's going to go yeah. away and it never does. Yeah, of course not. Well, I, I could keep talking about development all day, but we've got to move on to some somewhat other topics. Uh, you've gone through uh, some expansion uh, recently. You've gone through a couple of different mergers, correct? Correct. Yeah. yeah. So tell us a little bit about that. What was your What was your goal in getting into that, and and what changes is that going to mean for your company? Yeah, it's really exciting. So Sanderson Stewart, uh, as I said, you know, fifty four year old company, founded here in in Billings, and we've been in in Montana and and most recently in northern Colorado for a long, long time, and. As with many uh, professional services firms, there's a there's a circle of life as as you go through the the growth of a firm and 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 owners and and founders uh, retire and and we've got you know great new talent coming up taking on leadership and and so we've seen a, quite a bit of growth in recent years. Uh, at the same time, we were looking at okay, what's what's our next stage of growth where are we going from here and and so we started looking at what are our options going forward to to continue to grow the company there is also a lot of consolidation going on in our industry in the engineering planning landscape architecture and environmental services world if you however you want to define it there's there's probably north of a hundred thousand firms in the United States doing something related to what we do. Right. But they're like most professional services firms. 90% of them are 10 or 20 or 30 people or less. Right. It's a, it's a few principals hung out a shingle, went into business for themselves, run a great practice, but never really become much more than that. And, uh, so there's a lot of consolidation companies buying up and and merging and and consolidating companies like that and and we were certainly a target uh, I'll tell you we've been I've been called countless times over the last few years about whether that was something we were interested in doing was being absorbed into a larger organization and it wasn't really something we wanted uh I don't think but it's at some point you you start to get curious about what that might look sure. like um, so we went looking, uh, for what our options were, whether, were we going to be, be bought or were we going to be the ones, uh, kind of initiating the merger? Um, and through that process, uh, got introduced to some great people at a company in, uh, headquartered on Northern California called Belechi and Associates. 
similar to us, doing similar work, great people doing with similar culture and values. And we said, you know, the having some scale, the economies of scale help us, you know, uh, simple things like negotiating better terms on our insurance and things like that. Sure. But also just having the capacity Mm -hmm. to take on bigger projects and things. um, We felt like uh, a merger of our companies was would would help us accomplish that uh, at the same time then we as this was coming together we were talking with a company headquartered out of reno nevada called summit engineering and they were like-minded in terms of what they wanted to accomplish great people similar types of clients and so anyway we we over the course of a number of months merged our companies together i'm the ceo of that company but we have great you know, managing principles in those locations, running the lo- those local operations. I'm really proud. Of, and then here recently, we merged in another company called Coleman Engineering out of uh, Roseville, California. Um, and so now we're about 180 people, more than double the size we were. Wow. And uh, like say, we're here in Billings. I'm the, C- I'm the CEO of the combined companies and our support services team, human resources, marketing, um, finance and accounting and IT and stuff is all here in Billings, but uh, we really kind of have a an attitude of we're local everywhere. We don't want to be seen as like the mothership is is in sure. Billings. Um, we've got leadership in all those places, taking care of local clients. Um, so really excited. I, I'd say the thing I'm most proud of, or one of the things I'm most proud of in that, is that through that. A hundred percent of our employee shareholders in all all the organizations have retained ownership in the new okay. combined company. So it really is truly a merger, and yeah. that all the owners came together. Um, and a lot of times you hear the stories of mergers gone bad, acquisitions yeah. gone bad, where hostile takeover, hostile takeover, <laughs> bunch of people leave, all that yeah. kind of stuff. And you know, a lot of those, and and some of the ones that approached us, you know, they didn't they didn't want to have a lot of employee shareholders. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the things that makes our deal and what we're trying to accomplish unique and special is we, not only do we love having our employee shareholders, we, we want to encourage more of it. And so by doing what we've done, like say a hundred percent of our, of our shareholders have retained ownership and yeah. we want to continue to grow that that sh- that shareholder group going forward. Yeah, that definitely does seem like a positive sign. I think a lot of our listeners probably have a pretty good understanding of what economies of scale look like in a manufacturing context or something like that. What, what how do um how do economies of scale help you be more efficient in a professional services context? Uh, in a in a variety of ways. Um, one, I mean, certainly having scale in terms of our labor force and and these our labor forces these are these are highly trained professionals right mm-hmm. i mean engineers and land surveyors and yeah. architects and designers and and such but still to to produce the work that we do planning and design documents and and everything else it takes people and effort and so when one of our a clients, as we call them, comes in and has a a, a monstrous project they want us to take on. Um, 
if we're working in a, in a single office with one team of people, it may be more than we can take on at any one time, right? Sure. And in a la- in a labor market as that we're all aware of right now, right? That, yeah. that the labor market is is challenging. Um, and so one of the biggest constraints to growth is just the ability to to hire the people and build the the people capacity you need to to grow. Yeah. Um, just having scale allows us to absorb some of those types of yeah. of increases in demand that big project comes in, we can say, absolutely, we can do that because now we've got the ability, I can bring somebody from our Reno office. I can bring somebody from our Concord, California office in to, to help that team. And, and so there's that economy of scale. There's also just the stability and sustainability mm-hmm. created by having more legs to the, to the stool, if you yeah. will, in, in different markets. You know, the the Northern California market, the Fort Collins, Northern Colorado market, the Reno, Nevada market, the Billings and Bozeman, Montana market, you know, are influenced by different market forces. And, you know, the up, when you're a one market firm, you pretty much ride with the ups and downs of that economy, right? Mm. And so as we look to grow and create stability and growth opportunities, for our people. And this is really a people focused approach. Like why, why do this? It's about creating the stability and the sustainability for the organization that's that, that we need and opportunities for our people to grow. You know, we bring people, we bring young talent in, we train them, we develop them. If we're not growing as, as an organization and there's not cool growth opportunities for them yeah. to go take on, at some point, they look around and they're like, okay, I want to go try something different. I'm gonna, I have to go somewhere else to do that. And now with this, the scale and the breadth of our organization, we're doing some amazingly cool projects in a lot of cool places. If somebody says, you know, I'd really like to go try something different, we've got all sorts of opportunities now for them to do that in our organization, they don't have to leave Sanderson Stewart and and now what we call Sanderson Balachi. So, um, our merged organization, we created a new company called Sanderson Balachi for now. We are still doing business in our various regions under our current brand names. So we're still Sanderson Stewart in the Rockies, um, and Balachi in Northern California and, and summit in Nevada. At some point we will, we will co-brand, we'll rebrand as, as some common brand um, when the time feels right. Um, but Sanderson Balachi now, uh, you know, the opportunity to create just some, some exciting, fun opportunities for our, for our young, growing superstars um, is, is exciting to see and, and a big reason for why we decided to do it in the first place. That, that really is exciting. So I imagine that getting these mergers done was a big, almost consumed everything else for a little while. But now that you're kind of on the other side of that, what are your goals? What's, uh, what's coming up next? Well, I wouldn't say that we're on the other side of it yet. Okay. Um, it's certainly putting them together. There was a team, me and, and several others that were, were pretty much, it's been pretty much our project over <laughs> the last year or more to to make these things happen. We're now very much in the, the next phase of that, which is, you know, creating a 
integrated company, you know, bringing yeah. those companies together. So we look and talk and act and, and, and work together like, like one organization. Mm-hmm. And, and that's super fun because I mean, that type of organizational stuff is, it gets me excited. And, yeah. and so we've got a team working on that and that'll be ongoing. That's a work in process yeah. that'll probably never end. Right. We're always organizational improvement and, and growth is, is a never ending project. Um, yeah. But what's next? Um, you know, we, we're going to continue to grow in our, our current markets uh, organically just through, you know, the, the efforts to continue to, to serve clients in these markets and, and, and provide great service and all the things we do, attract and retain what we call cool, smart, talented people that yeah. we want working in our organization. But we've, we've kind of created a platform now that we're now kind of the ones that people are seeking out um, that say, hey, I kind of like what I see you guys yeah. doing. And so, you know, we're not going to go out and, and uh, be one of these companies that's just, you know, buying up everybody under, in the sure. world. But uh, we've got our eyes out uh, open for those next companies that we think are a great fit. The same culture and values and and motivated the same way as we are to to see if they would want to be part of the the Sanderson Belichy yeah. family. I guess the the question I really wanted to ask there was, you know, you've built up this, you know, this big new company. You've got this brand new big toy to play with. <laughs> uh, it's almost like building a muscle car and you want to take it for a spin. You have a pro- a type of project in mind that you maybe wouldn't have been able to do before that you really want to go after now that you've you've built this this thing. Oh, I don't know if there's pro- you know, a different type of project that we can do. We certainly have through these mergers have expanded though uh, to that point some of the different services we offer that we can offer across our now bigger company. So there's some, so there's some new services and specialized services in, in water and wastewater and, and things that, you know, we probably have that we can offer our clients now. Likewise, our expertise in traffic and transportation, we can offer in, in some of our new areas. And so there are in some, some areas, some new projects we could go after, but I think the ability to, you know, do what we do, which is, you know, we look for what we call a clients, these clients that are doing things the right way that mm-hmm. are, you know, helping to build communities and, and plan and design you know, what we call enduring communities, you know, and, and do more of that work in cool places. And, and now we've got a footprint in a lot more cool places across cool. the West and our footprint now, you know, where we were, you know, South central Montana and Northern Colorado with our offices across Nevada, Northern California, and we have people in satellite locations now in Utah and Oregon and, you know, Nevada and Arizona. And I mean, pretty much a footprint across the West now. Yeah. Um, all of a sudden we have the opportunity to work in all sorts of cool places, um, which is just fun, you know, yeah. to, to go out and see how we can help, uh, you know, improve the improve make the world a better place yeah yeah and you talk about retaining talent you now your people can live in a variety of different places without changing jobs too yeah well and and you know the fact that we have a footprint across the west at the same time the whole idea of virtual work and hybrid work schedules and everything else now we can have people who hey we've got this really talented person who happens to live in some particular place yeah and we can plug them into our organization and, and have them be a productive part of the team. 
uh, which is kind of opens up a whole new universe of of what we can do with our company and so yeah i mean we're we're definitely a western us regional company at this point and and who knows sky's the limit yeah there uh, so i had a, just a couple of questions that just quick questions that i wanted to ask to wrap up the show today we we hear a lot of pessimistic messages when it comes to you know development and growth and all that kind of stuff uh, would you mind sharing something with the audience that makes you feel optimistic about the future of billings or wherever you work for that matter you know you don't do i mean one you don't own a a, a small business or you know become an entrepreneur if you're not an optimist mm. at your core, right? Sure. <laughs> you That's know, a good point. You know, you, know, you got to be, a, so I, I am an optimist, right? Otherwise it wouldn't do what we do. You know, you show up every day um, doing what we do, trying to uh, grow a company, but also help communities grow because you're optimistic that what you're doing is going to have a positive impact yeah. and be successful, right? And so every project we do, in my opinion, we do it with an attitude of, you know, this is going to improve this community in a way that's, you know, that's positive and otherwise what you wouldn't do it, right? And so so I, I'm an optimist, um, just I think it, it down to my DNA. You know, I was born and raised in Billings. Um, Got family that goes way back in this area, um, and so I've always been a champion uh, of Billings. Billings has its challenges, but I just think its bones are good, um, and so I'm I'm optimistic that we'll find a way to you know invest in the right things and 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 really leverage the the real you know just amenities and beauty and of this this place you know and it's just got it's just got a lot going for it too much going for it for it to not ultimately be successful even if there's a few bumps in the road so i you know i'm an optimist we wouldn't we wouldn't be continuing to build our business here all right well you pretty much answered my other question which we we close out every episode asking our, our guests how long have you lived in billings and what keeps you here and i think you've covered that pretty dang well yeah my roots are pretty, pretty deep in Billings. Yeah. Well, this was a fantastic episode. I learned a lot. I know our audience is going to as well. But congratulations on all the exciting stuff that you have going on. And please keep up the good work. Yeah, appreciate it. Thanks for the opportunity. Thank you. Thank you so much to Michael Sanderson for joining us today. If you would like to suggest a topic or ask a question, please feel free to email us at podcast at billingschamber.com. If you like what you hear, please rate us on your preferred podcast platform or recommend us to a friend. And don't forget to subscribe to Chambercast wherever you get your podcast because there is something here for everyone. 